following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Growing up in a house with four brothers, um, you could probably imagine that everything we did was a competition, a battle, a fight. Uh, we call it roughhousing. But if you have boys, you know what roughhousing means. It's just a nice way of saying they were fighting. And that's what happened in our house. Lots of fighting, lots of roughhousing, lots of sports, constantly running around playing every game we could get involved in and even creating our own. And throughout my, my, my whole life growing up, uh, then competing in high school and college and post-collegiately, one of the things that, that I'm always really thankful for is I never really had an injury. All, my brothers had broken bones and all that stuff. Never had a serious injury. In fact, I never even broke a bone, really. Now I say really. Because I never did re- I think I broke a bone twice. My pinky toe. I think I broke my little toe twice. The last time it happened, I was, I was in our bedroom at home, and I turned to walk out of the room, but the door wasn't fully open or fully closed. It was kind of part way. And I turned to walk and I caught my, just caught my little toe right on the edge of the door. And it was the most painful thing I've ever been through. My wife makes fun of me because, you know, she gave birth and stuff. But my little toe breaking, that was the most painful thing I'd ever, and I just remember letting out kind of, kind of the shriek. I'm not going to do it now. I'm not going to subject you to that, but kind of let out the shriek. And then I, I, I hobble across the uh, 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 across to the, the room that's across from our bedroom and I'm laying on the floor and I do this thing when I get hurt that I just laugh hysterically. I don't, know, it, I don't know if anybody else laughs. I'm the only crazy one. Okay, so I am ridiculously crazy. Like I, I, I don't cry, I don't weep, I don't do anything. I just laugh hysterically. In fact, Aaron tells the kids all the time like, hey, if daddy's laughing, you know he's really hurt. Right? And so I'm laying on the floor rolling around like laughing hysterically because I, I, I think I broke my toe. Now, I don't know if I broke my toe because you don't go to the doctor for a broken toe because they're going to charge you a bunch of money to go, yep, it's broken. We can't do anything for it. So you don't go to the doctor for a broken toe. So I think I broke it. But what happened was for the next like two weeks, everything I did was different. Like the way I walked was different because I couldn't put weight on my foot. Uh, Things I did for for exercise, for workout were different. The way I, just the way I structured my schedule, the way I played with my kids was all different because I had this broken toe that was really painful. What does that have to do with the church? The point here is this. It doesn't take a major shift to make a major impact. I broke this tiny little bone in my little toe, but it changed everything about what I did for the foreseeable future. James tells us, uh, talking about the power of the tongue, he says, you, you know, think about a ship, right? A big ship is steered and moved by this tiny rudder. Sometimes it just takes this small thing to make a major change. And as we talked about the gathered church, we've covered some pretty big concepts, in, in the last couple of weeks. But today I want us to talk about how this gathering, this one time a week for 60 to 80 minutes, 
has a major impact on the rest of our days, weeks, months, years ahead. And so the question I want you to be thinking about as we we talk this morning is this, how does an hour on Sunday morning alter my path through the other 167 hours of my week? In this series, we're talking about four words. Upward, inward, outward, forward. Two weeks ago, we talked about upward. We talked about how gathering resets our focus upward on, uh, on God's majesty, on Jesus' sacrifice, and on the Holy Spirit's power. Last week, we talked about how gathering changes our focus inward and our understanding of our identity as a church and, and how we see ourselves now as a, a team and a body and a family. And now today, we want to shift that view outward. And we're going to see three ways that gathering together with a local church in the physical body of the church changes the way we live the rest of our lives. And the first way that this happens is that we understand gathering sets our standard. Gathering sets our standard. See, the gathered church is the context in which you and I are pushed deeper into the truth of God's word and the truth of who God is, into the truth of Jesus' sacrifice, into the truth of the Holy Spirit's power. This is why, as we've talked about before, our regular diet as a church body when we have these times together is to teach through books of the Bible. And because we want God's word spoken through God's prophets, digested by God's people, to be the standard for God's holy church. That is to say that we want God to set the standards for our lives, for all that we think, all that we do, all that we say, and all that we teach. We want God to set the standard. There's a story of a a young man who came to to a a fourth century monk named Poemen. And Poemen was one of the, the early church fathers. He's called one of the desert fathers. They were a bunch of monks that lived out in literally in the desert, in these little huts by themselves, and spent all of their lives just thinking and contemplating on on things of spiritual, uh, 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 of the spiritual nature, and then teaching that to other people. And this young man came to Poem, and he said, listen, I'm struggling with this thing in my life, and I just can't seem to get it under control. I can't seem to figure this out. What do I do? And Poem's answer to him was very simple. His instruction was, read the word of God. And he continued and said, the drip of a fountain pierces the stone and the gentle word falling softly day by day on the dead hard heart after a while infallibly melts it. What he's saying is when you come to God's word, it changes you because God's word is powerful. Whether you want God's word to change you or not, if you sit under his word day in, day out, constantly, coming back time and time again, God's word will change you because it is powerful, because it is life changing. And while you and I can and should spend time in God's word on our own, we should be spending time studying the truth of God's word on our own. There's an accountability that happens that helps us to stand firm when we do this with a body of believers. Let me show you how this happens in the New Testament, book of Acts. Uh, Chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, we get kind of the telling of this man named Apollos. 
And it says this, starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Kai, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, here's what I want you to see about Apollos. At the beginning of, of these verses, how's Apollos doing? He's, he's doing well. He's doing a, a, a good job. He's speaking boldly. He's not proclaiming any kind of heresy or, or, or false teachings about who Jesus is. No, he's, he's describing Jesus accurately. He's doing a really good job. But it wasn't until he spent time with the church, Priscilla and Aquila pulling him aside and spending time with the, the brothers and the sisters, as it says in verse 27, it's not until he spends time with the church that his teaching and his understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done truly flourishes. Why is that? Because his standard was now not what he had heard once from somebody or what he knew of the Old Testament. He was a, he was a Jewish man, so he knew the Old Testament really well. His standard had become Jesus Christ and the truth through Jesus Christ. His standard moved beyond what he had heard, what he knew, even his ability to speak eloquently, even his zeal for the faith and for Jesus. It was now a deep, true understanding of the meaning of the gospel as laid out in God's word by Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit's power. How's that apply to you and me? Well, the truth is, whether we like to admit it or not, every single one of us is prone to blind spots, to preconceived notions of what is good, what is right, what is true, what is acceptable, and to failings in our own personal approach to God's word and to scripture. So when we gather together, we get to hold one another accountable, to remain committed to the authority and the standard of God's word as the truth, as the standard for our lives. Because we come together not to, to, to be confirmed in what I want to think about what God says, but we come to understand who God is, what Jesus has done, how his spirit is at work, and what he has told us through his word, how God's authority encourages us, warns us, and commands us to live, to think, and to act in every day of our lives. See, when we try to figure it out on our own, we always get it wrong. You know how I know that? Because not a single one of us is God. So when left to our own devices, we will get it wrong. We need the body to hold us accountable to continue to bring us back to the truth of God's word. And that's not always going to be fun. 
Sometimes God says things that contradicts what we want to believe and what we wish he would have said. But that question that we have to ask ourselves in understanding the gathering as a time to set our standards is this, when, when God's word cuts us deep, when he contradicts our thinking, do we have a family of faith around us who can encourage us, who can challenge us, who can hold us accountable to God's truth as the standard in our lives? See, gathering sets our standard for how we accept and apply God's truth. It keeps us accountable. It holds us to the path. Second, gathering strengthens our roots. Gathering strengthens our roots. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25, um, another passage that many of you will, will know well. The author of, of Hebrews writes, Brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. The author of Hebrews says, listen, we are called to come together. He says, it's not enough for you and me to say, I understand God's word. I understand the standards of what Jesus sets, and I believe that. Now let me go on my way and do what I want to do, the way I want to do it, how I want to do it, wherever I want to do it. Because I believe all that stuff, so I'm good. Well, the author of Hebrews understands that we need strong roots to ground us in that truth that we know and that we believe so that we can live that out, so that we can implement that into our daily lives. The author of Hebrews says, because of Jesus' blood and God's faithfulness, we have confidence to stand firm in the confessions of our faith, that is the truth of the gospel, and to help one another to do the same. It's really a reminder that as you face the challenges and the struggles of this life, that you are not alone. Look at how many times, just in these, these few verses, we get this understanding of us together, right? He says, brothers and sisters, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary. He's inaugurated for us a new and living way. And since we have a great high priest, let us draw near so that we might have a full assurance. Let our hearts be sprinkled clean. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope since he who promises faithful. Let us consider one another in order to pro pro provoke love and good works, not neglecting meeting together. You see, Everything through it, he says, come together, come together. You need one another. You can't do this on, on your own. And so God has provided for you what you need in his faithfulness, in his goodness. He has given you what you need in the gathered body of Christ. And that reminder keeps us faithful, 
keeps us standing firm in our faith. We walk, we, we live with Christ, needing strong roots to keep us faithful. You ever seen pictures of, of giant sequoia trees out west? Anybody ever seen these things, the giant redwood sequoias? These things are massive, right? They can grow to be 35 feet wide, over 300 feet tall. If you were to knock one down, some of them weigh over 600 tons. I mean, these are, are massive, massive trees. But if you know anything about the giant sequoia trees, you know there's something really interesting about the way they grow in that they need other sequoia trees to grow. See, their, group, their roots don't grow straight down. Some of their roots grow down, but some of their roots grow to the side. In fact, they seek out and link together with other giant sequoia trees. The, the sheer weight of these things, if left to their own roots, they would topple over at the slightest wind. But because they join their roots together, because they work together, they stand strong for literally thousands of years. See, this life, our enemy, they can and will beat you up, knock you around, try to pull you as far away from Jesus Christ as humanly possible. If you and I are going to maintain a faithful walk with Jesus Christ, we need roots that hold us up. We need roots to anchor us, to help us survive, and we need to link with the roots of those around us so that we can stand strong together. Because again, a life of faith is never a promise that things are going to go well for you, that they're going to be easy that it's always going to feel good, that you got rainbows and unicorns and ice cream every day. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If you spent any time reading the Bible, you know it's the exact opposite. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, and he says, all who want to live a godly life. Did you hear it? All, not some, not most, not a few, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A great encouraging verse. We don't see those on coffee mugs. If you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. It's a promise of scripture. But in our trials, we're also promised that if we're rooted in Jesus Christ, he supplies us with the strength to endure. In Psalm 34, verse 19, the psalmist writes, one who is righteous has many adversities but the Lord rescues him from them all. Whatever the adversity is that is coming up against you right now, whatever that trial, whatever that battle, that struggle, whatever that question, whatever that doubt, whatever that fear, whatever that interpersonal conflict the Lord rescues you from them all. In fact, Jesus in John 16, verse 33. And if you remember John 16, this is part of Jesus' last teaching. 
He's washed the disciples' feet. He's preparing to be crucified. His disciples don't quite get this yet. But in chapter 16, verse 33, he says to his disciples, you will have suffering in this world, period. You will have suffering in this world. Then he says this. I love that he follows that up with this. He says, be courageous. I have conquered the world. Right? You will have suffering when you are in this world, but I have conquered this world, so what do you have to fear? Nothing. So Jesus, in conquering the world, also did something else. He delivered us from sin and death, yes. He also established the church. He also established the brotherhood and sisterhood of the believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to supply you the strength and the courage and everything you need. He says, I'm going to do that by sending the Holy Spirit to live in you, to indwell you, to give you power, to give you strength. But he says, I'm also giving you my church to walk with, to live with, to fight alongside with, to struggle with, to hurt with. He says, I'm going to supply you everything you need. But you're going to need the church. You're going to need the family. See, if you're spending all your time, if you're spending all your time apart from the church, if you're not spending a consistent, regular time with fellow believers for a common purpose of spiritual growth and development and worship of God, then I can guarantee you this one thing. I can guarantee you that if not today, sooner or later, your faith will be tattered, your theology will be twisted, and your spiritual life will be lacking the strength you need to endure the childs that come at you. You've heard my soapbox many times of the the whole idea of like, I got Jesus, I don't need the church. That's dumb. Few things make me angrier than hearing that because it shows a complete lack of understanding of who Jesus is. And what it says is, no, I don't need the church. I'm strong enough. I got Jesus, so I'm strong enough to overcome the world. Which sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound right? Sounds right. If I have Jesus, I can overcome the world because Jesus overcame more. That sounds right. The problem is we are all broken and flawed people who are imperfect, and so we can't do everything that Jesus did. I'm yet to meet a person who is perfect. Sorry, I don't mean that to offend you guys because I've met all of you. Right? Yeah, if we could be perfect... We would only need Jesus. But I don't know about you, I still battle with my flesh. I still make bad choices. I still do dumb stuff that I know is wrong. Because I'm far from perfect. That's why I need the church. That's why I need brothers and sisters in Christ. I think sometimes people think like pastors or people who work in churches, like, should just have, your life is perfect, it's even kill all the time, you don't struggle, 
You don't get frustrated. You are Jesus. Hate to break it to you. I am not. Maybe some other pastors are. Right? I was just reminded this week, like, as I came in this morning even, I, I, I felt like the last few days I've, I've just had this, like, funk surrounding me. You ever have the funk that surrounds you? Right? There's no real reason for it. You just, like, eh, I don't know. Ugh. Right? And, and for me on Sunday mornings, what the funk does, <laughs> the funk makes me just want to lay in bed. Like, I got to get up and go to church. But here's the thing. If I tell you that I love coming to church every Sunday, I am not lying to you one bit. Because the reality is, I know even when I come in with the funk and I'm not feeling it, that I get to come hang out with you guys. I get to see smiles. I get to get, get hugs. I get to see the kids running around. I get to see the joy that God brings to his people through his church. And sometimes that's not even directly related to me. It's not even that somebody gives me an encouraging word or somebody gives me a big hug or somebody does that for me. It's the fact that I see it in action. And man, that always encourages me. That always builds me up. That always prepares me to move beyond the funk. But that doesn't happen if I stay home laying in bed. The funk doesn't leave. The funk beats me. But God, through Jesus Christ and his church, beats the funk every week. I can't wait to see that transcribed on Facebook this week. Growing deep roots doesn't mean we won't struggle. It doesn't mean we won't get banged around or we won't get beat up. It means that we continue to grow in the face of the trial, in the face of the struggle, because Jesus Christ has given us everything we need in his spirit and in his church. Gathering sets our standard. Gathering strengthens our root. One more. Gathering sets, gathering sights our vision. Gathering sights our vision. Book of Proverbs, chapter 29, verse 18. It says, without revelation, people run wild. But one who follows divine instruction will be happy. Okay, if there is a like, top 10 list of most abused Bible verses, this one is probably on it. Because usually we hear a verse like this brought up when a church is doing some kind of vision casting for a, a new ministry or some kind of capital raising campaign. And the idea is, well, God's given the church this vision, so you need to get in line or get out of the way. It's a terrible application of that verse. See, when we really study this verse, what it's talking about is it's talking about where we get our vision and how our vision for what God has put in front of us is established. He says, listen, if we set our vision, if I'm the source of my vision, of my mission, then I'm going to induce chaos, and I'm going to end up rejecting God's commands, because God's vision is never going to align with what I want, with what I want in my flesh. But when I turn to him, and allow God's revelation to be the vision for my life, then I do receive the fulfillment of that vision. And it is joyous and it is satisfying. Why? Because it doesn't come from my flesh. 
comes from the sovereign, holy God. See, revelation and vision is not about our hopes and our dreams. It's about a commitment to God's calling in our life and to his vision. So how does that look in the church? Let me give you three implications of this, of of turning to the Lord for our vision, for the revelation, and, and for allowing that to be our commitment to him. It's gonna do three things in our lives. First, gathering under God's vision decentralizes me. Gathering under God's vision decentralizes me, right? It takes me out of the center of my life, out of the center of my world. Because God's vision for you and me starts with us having no God but him. Right, Exodus 20, verses one through three, you get the start of the, the 10 commandments. And what's the first commandment? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because anything else leads us to trouble. He says, if you'll just worship me, the rest will take care of itself. Gathering reminds us that we are not the center of our theology. We are not the center of our worship. We are not the center of our satisfaction. We are not the center of our joy. Why does that happen here? Because everywhere else in our lives, right, everything else you do throughout the week can really easily become you-centered, can it? Your, Your work, your conversations, your family, vacations, grocery shopping, right? You, you name it. Name something you do this week. And it's not a leap to put yourself at the center of what's happening. But when we gather together for this time, it's a reminder that we are not the center. Right? Our focus is shifted from ourselves, shifted upward to God's majesty, to Christ's sacrifice, and to the Holy Spirit's power. Gathering decentralizes me. But second, gathering celebrates we. Gathering celebrates we. God's vision for his people begins with the worship of him, but then it moves forward to how we serve others. And what's, what's the greatest commandment that Jesus says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. So it starts by decentralizing me and then moves to celebrating we. How do we serve one another? How do we love one another? In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Verse 20 is a verse we know really well. Right now to him who is able to do above and beyond all we ask or think according to the power that that is at work within us. But then we get verse 21 where he says, to him, right, the God who is powerful, sovereign over everything, to him be glory, right, praise God, in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God says the the praise of who he is, the proclamation of his glory comes through Jesus Christ, but then it comes through the church, And the church is not you, 
The church is not me. The church is we. So when we come together, we're reminded that this is not about my role in life. This is, God, what are you calling me to do as a part of your body, as a part of your team, as part of your family? We, the church, get to show the world the unimaginable power of God. But that doesn't happen because of me. That happens because of we. So gathering decentralizes me. Gathering celebrates we. Last one. Gathering proclaims the gospel. Gathering proclaims the gospel. God's vision for his church is to cross every imaginable line. Every cultural line. Every economic line. Every political line. God's vision for his church is to cross every line. Galatians 3, verse 27 through 29 says, For those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. There's nothing that binds us together. So we look around this room. We've talked about this a couple times over the last few weeks. When we look around this room, what binds us together? It's not where we live. It's not our address. It's not how much money's in our bank account. It's not what car we drive. It's not how many kids we have. It's not relationship status. It's something greater than any of that. It's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's the truth that we are heirs to the kingdom of God because he loves us so much that he refused to leave us in our sin and our death. And instead of letting us try and try and try and fail and fail and fail, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin so he could live perfectly, die sacrificially, rise victoriously, and deliver us completely so that we could be heirs to the kingdom of God, so that we would be brothers and sisters in Christ, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done. Listen, we live in a world of division, amen? Oh, that's like four amens right there. We live in a world of division, and we're divided by selfish and sinful desires at every turn. But we are blessed as a church family to come together and to show the world that there's another way. To show the world that through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what brought us here. We are united together. And we know the joy and the hope and the love of Jesus Christ together. This 60 to 80 minutes a week is a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our understanding of our need for and the purpose of the gathered church not only changes the way that we think about the church or, or, or about how we fit into this team, this, this body, this family. It changes the way that we take that identity out into our daily lives. And when we think biblically about the church, we see that it calls us to come in to this one specific place at this one specific time 
with this one specific purpose so that we can go out and be the church outside of this place, this time, and this gathering. Our time as the gathered church, our time together serves to solidify and to set the standard of our lives, to strengthen, to deepen, and broaden the roots of our faith and to accurately cite God's vision in our lives and for our faith. So church, family, may we never come to this place and walk out these doors the same way we came in. That doesn't mean that every sermon has to move you or, or every song is going to be some emotional moving experience or that every conversation is going to be incredibly encouraging to you. But we, may we never forget that when we come together in this time, when we worship together, that God is doing a work in us and through us in one another and through one another, in his church and through his church. And may our renewed focus and courage and boldness lead us forward as messengers of God's kingdom to share the love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, joy, hope, purpose, mission, and satisfaction of Jesus Christ in all the places that the Holy Spirit takes you and me this week. Let's pray together. Father God, you are good. And we're thankful that you have seen fit to redeem us, to buy us back from the destruction of our flesh and to bring us into your kingdom so we could be renewed as your sons and daughters. And we thank you that as we do that, you haven't called us to be a part of your family in this world and then try to fight our way through it on our own, but you have given us, not, you, you, you've given us everything we need to not just survive, but to thrive, to take your glory, your majesty, your power, your might into the world around us. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, filling us, guiding us, moving us. But we thank you as well for the church, for the fact that you have given us brothers and sisters in Christ that we can walk with, who we can, can endure and can thrive alongside of. And Lord, may we now go into the week ahead, ready to be the church, ready to share the truth that we know that you have done in our lives, ready to take the, the joy and the hope of the family of God to a lost, broken, and, and hurting world around us, that they may see the love, the grace, the mercy that they are seeking, that they are waiting for. Lord, we love you. Thank you and we praise you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.